you haven't already done so, take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to John 15. If you don't have a Bible, grab one that's uh, in the pew there in front of you. And uh, you can find our sermon text on page 902. I should say sermon texts, because we're going to look at two this morning. One that closes out John 15, and another sort of midway through chapter 16. Uh, And both of these texts that we'll look at this morning speak to the unique role the Holy Spirit plays within God's plan to save us. They don't cover everything about the Holy Spirit, but they do provide some crucial insights to the the nature of His ministry once Jesus returns to the Father. We must remember where we are in John's story here, right? We must remember that Jesus is on His way to die and then rise again from the dead and then ascend to glory to be with His Father. The disciples are not going to see Him much longer, but that doesn't mean they'll be left alone. All right, Jesus plans to send the Spirit, and these disciples need to understand the Spirit's role within God's purposes in order to help the church, that's you and me, understand the Spirit's role within God's purposes. You know, many people throughout church history have failed to understand the Spirit's role within God's purposes, and it has led to great error inside the church and brought great harm outside the church. It has led to great error inside the church because the church has lost sight of where we access Christ in all His glory. We've started chasing after other things that our flesh is excited about, and it has brought great harm outside the church because people are missing out on Christ for some other experience or some other man-made religion without seeing what the Spirit Himself reveals about Jesus. And people are perishing for it. It's serious. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is look at four truths about the Spirit's role within God's purposes. And I want to frame these four truths as, as opportunities to give thanks for the Spirit of truth. We've already been giving thanks for God's abundant graces this morning. And I want to Continue that as we look at the Holy Spirit. But let's start by reading Jesus' words first in John 15, uh, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. All right, now jump over to chapter 16, verse 8. Something else the Spirit's doing. When the Helper comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will, not, you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. 
And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So four truths about the Holy Spirit for which we should give thanks. And then I want to look at how these truths should transform us. Number one, let's give thanks that the Spirit is one in divinity and mission with the Father and the Son. The Spirit is one in divinity and mission with the Father and the Son. Notice that Jesus doesn't present the Spirit as some kind of uh, impersonal force. Pay attention, all you Star Wars fans. Jesus doesn't say, it will bear witness about me. But he will bear witness about me. He will convict the world. He will guide you into all truth. The Spirit is a person not a mere force or mysterious power. Also notice the Spirit is a distinct person from Jesus and the Father. Jesus sends the Spirit. He doesn't send Himself. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit also comes from the Father. So He's a person and He's distinct from the Father and the Son. So we should never say with some bad thinking in church history that the Spirit is but a third mode of God's existence. Right? The Spirit is never the Father. The Spirit is never the Son. The Father and the Son do not ever become the Spirit. The Spirit is His own distinct person. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit just does whatever He wants. He just, like He just does His own thing. Any more than Jesus just does His own thing. Rather, there is unceasing unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. To this point in John's Gospel... The primary focus has been on the unity between the Father and the Son. The Son pre-exists with the Father. He loves the Father, pleases the Father, always knows the Father, comes when the Father sins, speaks the Father's words, does the Father's works, dwells in the Father, and the Father dwells in Him. And all this is to the degree that the Son reveals perfectly the Father in all that He is and does. It's by looking at the Father's unity with the Son in mission that we have get, gotten a glimpse of the Father's unity with the Son in divinity. Well, now we find something similar with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work reveals what God is like relationally. That is how the Spirit relates to the Father and the Son. And the Spirit's work reveals what God is like constitutionally. That is, what God is like in His very being, in His triune community. The Spirit's distinct role alongside the Father and Son in mission 
points to his unity with the Father and Son in divinity. For example, that Jesus sends the Spirit from the Father, like we see here in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 26. That Jesus sends the Spirit from the Father presupposes the Spirit dwelling with the Father and the Son in eternity. Or in chapter 14, verse 18, that Jesus says he will come again to the disciples by the Spirit's mediating presence so that to have the Spirit in you is to have Jesus in you presupposes a unity that extends beyond just who they are in mission, but who they are in divinity. Same thing happens with the Father and Son taking up their abode or dwelling in the believer by the Spirit in chapter 14, verse 23. It reveals a unity in mission as well as divinity. Or in the same way, the Father and Son throughout John's Gospel have been the source of truth. So now we see that the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. This too reveals this deep Unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. But, and this is important, when the Spirit comes, He doesn't reveal the Father the same way Jesus reveals the Father. Meaning, the Spirit does not take on flesh. Only the Son takes to Himself a human nature. The Spirit comes in His role... To point everybody then to the Son who took on flesh. That's the Spirit's role in eternity and in history. In eternity, He unceasingly promotes the Father's glory as it is reflected in the Son. And now at the Father and Son's request, He comes to convince rebels on earth that the Father has done something amazing in the Son that frees them to enjoy the glory that He has has witnessed for all eternity. And that leads us to the next reason to give thanks for the spirit of truth. He give thanks that the spirit guides the disciples into all the truth. He's called the spirit of truth there in chapter 15, verse 26. And that's related to the truth that he knows and brings with him from the father. And then in chapter 16, verse 13, we actually see that part of his mission within God's purposes is to lead these disciples into all the truth. And this is massively important. If, if you're just following the, the storyline that, that John is developing in his gospel, it is massively important because in John's gospel, the world is full of people who are caught in lies. Lies of the devil himself. He is called the father of lies. He rules the worldwide system of rebellion against God by deceiving people into following him. The devil blinds people's spiritual eyes to keep them from seeing God's glory in Jesus. If you're here today and don't care much about Jesus, the Bible's diagnosis to your condition is this. Satan is blinding you to seeing the light of God's glory in the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The only being in whom truth dwells is God. 
but we are separated from Him because of our sin. We have no access to Him on our own. But here's what the Father does in His kindness. We on earth are sitting in our lies, the lies of the evil ones, being blinded because of our sin and Satan's doings. The Father in His kindness reveals Himself by speaking the truth. He then reveals Himself even more by sending His only Son to embody the truth. And now we see both Father and Son sending the Spirit to guide disciples into all truth. It's just mercy upon mercy upon mercy from the triune God of the universe to a rebellious world sitting in lies. But let's clarify a couple of things further here. The truth here, uh, when Jesus says he will guide you into all the truth, it's not It's not all you could possibly know about everything in some sort of vague sense of truth. What he's talking about is all that you need to know about Jesus in particular. Who he is, why he came, what he achieved, and what does all this imply for your life. That's how I take the end of verse 13. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. This parallels Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospel of John. He has been bringing truth from the Father and speaking it to them about himself. And now the Holy Spirit, the other helper, the other helper who's going to continue Jesus' ministry is coming to reveal the significance of Jesus Christ, as well as all that his person and work imply. The Spirit's role is to reveal the significance of the Christ event, as well as all of its consequences. So, for example, when he leads the disciples into all truth, he doesn't just tell them that Jesus came and died and rose again. He tells them why Jesus came and died and rose again. Right now, all the disciples are are eyewitnesses to these various historical events that they're seeing Jesus do, these various things. They don't really know what's going on still. They don't know the full extent of why he's changing water into wine and why he's driving people out of the temple and why he's raising a, a, a man up from his mat and why he's giving sight to the blind and why he's raising ladders out of the grave and why he's getting on the cross to die. They don't understand what all these events mean. That's why the Spirit is coming to take what they have witnessed with their eyes and tell them everything that they mean. When the Spirit comes, He will teach them what those events mean. And what does He teach them? Well, for example, Jesus performed these miracles not just to wow people but to prove that he was sent from the Father. Jesus spoke words, not just as another moral teacher, but as God himself in the flesh. Jesus died on the cross like a criminal, but not because he was a criminal, but but, but because we were criminals. Jesus bled at the hands of sinful men. That's a historical fact that they witnessed. But the Spirit helps them understand that He bled as the Lamb who takes away our sins. 
And this kind of teaching extends into the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts as we see how the Christ event affects worldwide mission and then into the letters of our New Testament to show how the Christ event shapes our life together as a church and then into the book of Revelation to show how the Christ event helps a suffering church win through Jesus' present and future reign. This is how the Spirit teaches the disciples about Jesus and this is why your New Testament exists. Which leads me to make another clarification. Jesus' promise that the Spirit will guide you into all the truth is a promise given to the 11 disciples here that he's talking to. It's true that the Spirit teaches all believers of all times about the truth. We see that elsewhere in the New Testament. He illumines our minds to the truth. He helps us understand Jesus' words. But that's not the promise Jesus is making here. Jesus has in mind something more specific. He's giving a specific promise limited to those he would authorize to communicate the final standard for all future preaching of the gospel. You see, if, say that again. He's giving a specific promise limited to those who would auth- he would authorize to communicate the final standard for all future preaching of the gospel. Now, I limit it this way because of what we saw already in chapter 14, verse 26. You want to turn one page over? Part of the Spirit's role, says, was to help the disciples remember, teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, meaning all that He has said to to them in His earthly ministry. And none of us can claim that. We didn't hear with our ears anything Jesus said. Then also in chapter 15, verse 27, he promises that these disciples will bear witness in connection with the Spirit's coming. And get this, they're going to bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And none of us can claim that. None of us had been with Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry. So Jesus didn't authorize just anybody to bear witness in the sense that he's speaking about here. He authorized those he had been with from the beginning of his work on earth. The same thing comes up later in the book of Acts. When the disciples are trying to find a replacement for Judas Iscariot and they choose Matthias. Well, the replacement, it says, had to be a man who accompanied them during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John the Baptist until the day that he was taken up from us. That's what it says. Got to be that kind of man. They only had two. Cast lots, choose Matthias. There we go. Now we got 12 again. What this means is that If you want to hear what the Spirit says about Jesus, then you do not turn to Joseph Smith and you do not turn to the opinions of Muhammad. You turn to the Christ-authorized words of the apostles written here. The apostles' witness to Jesus is identical with the witness of the Holy Spirit. So much for uh, red-letter editions of the Bible, right? The apostles' witness 
the whole New Testament, to, uh, their witness to Jesus is identical with the witness of the Spirit to Jesus. And not merely because we receive it as so, but because Jesus himself declared it as so. You want to know why Christians uphold the New Testament uh, to be the Word of God alongside the Old Testament? Jesus Christ and His Lordship. That's why. He made the Apostles' writings part of the Spirit's work of revelation within God's story of redemption. And we're reading about it here in John's Gospel. Now, I'll tell you where we come into the picture in just a minute, but there's a couple more truths we need to give thanks for first. Number three, give thanks that the Spirit glorifies Jesus. This is what uh, chapter 16, verse 14 says. The Spirit, so when He comes and does all that we've been talking about just now, the Spirit will glorify me, for He will take what is mine, and we can think of all that Jesus has been saying and doing in uh, everything that's preceding this. He will take that, all that is mine, and and declare it to you. Again, to you 11 here. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, we're seeing the unity of the persons within the Godhead stressed, especially in terms of the message delivered to the disciples. The Spirit's not saying anything different from what the Father and Son have been saying all along. The issue is how the Spirit's Word isn't His own message, but Jesus' message given Him by the Father to deliver. It's basically referring to all God has chosen to reveal of Himself in and through Jesus. The Spirit takes what the Father chooses to reveal of Himself in Jesus and then gives it to the disciples. And when He does this, Jesus is glorified. That means He is He is set before them as beautiful, as glorious. The Spirit lifts up Jesus before men to see Him as He truly is. He doesn't add glory to the Son in His ministry. He reveals the Son as glorious in His ministry And how is Jesus shown to be glorious? When the Spirit sets before us the Father's revelation in the Son. I once read J.I. Packer calling this the floodlight ministry of the Spirit. Uh, In the same way a floodlight might shine on a building, the Spirit's ministry casts light on Jesus. He writes, When floodlighting is done well... the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them... You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all of its details into relief so that you see it properly. The spirit, so to speak, is the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. That's what's going on here. When the Spirit reveals to the disciples who Jesus is and what He's about, He glorifies Jesus. 
in some ways, this is a remarkable new phase, for lack of a better vocabulary, in the Spirit's ministry. That has never occurred before. Now get me straight here. It is true that the Spirit has glorified Jesus for all eternity. His whole business was to declare the Father's glory in the Son. And that never ceased even when the Son took to Himself a human nature. What makes His glorification of Jesus new was that He would be pointing the whole world to the glory of Jesus now as the exalted God-man. Does that make sense? Before, in eternity, Jesus did not have a human nature. The Son never had a human nature. Then He comes, dies, rises again, and ascends to glory in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father as a man, where He stands now, right now, as a man with His human body, the God-man, and the Spirit's ministry now is to point everybody to Him. The God-man. So this is partly why uh, John 7.39 says, For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, Once Jesus is glorified in the cross and resurrection and exaltation to the Father's right hand, then the floodlight ministry of the Spirit would come and reveal Jesus as the glorious God-man, the one who took on flesh to defeat sin, death, and the devil. For countless multitudes. The disciples would have their eyes open to Jesus' glory and they would write a New Testament that explains it. And one more thing he does when this happens. When the Spirit glorifies Jesus and when he gives the disciples these words to proclaim to the world, the Spirit also convicts the world. And that's the fourth truth we need to give thanks for. The Spirit convicts the world. Anybody in this room who is saved ought to give thanks that the Spirit convicts sinners. That the Spirit comes, takes this revelation, implants it on our hearts, and opens us wide to receive God's mercy. We, we need to be thankful for this ministry of the Spirit. That's what's going on in verses 8 to 11. When He comes... He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. Now, we're going to get to those verses more thoroughly in a couple of weeks. But for today, let me just paint the picture of what's going on. When the Spirit comes, He doesn't just convict the world by fiat, like, be convicted. No, he, he takes the, the, the apostles' words that he's given them, that he's inspired, and he takes their proclamation of Jesus and he uses that proclamation to convict sinners. We are convicted by the Spirit and Word together. He convicts the world by pointing the world to Jesus through the testimony he gave to the disciples. Notice that every phrase in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 16 refer to something about Jesus. This is why the conviction comes, because something about Jesus was said. Because they do not believe in me. 
because I go to the Father, because the ruler of this world is judged. And we know from chapter 12, he's judged in the death of Jesus. So the Spirit takes the Father's revelation in Jesus, explains that revelation for the disciples, and then uses that revelation to convict the world. Conviction comes to the world when the Spirit sets Christ before the world in the disciples' testimony, in what they, have, uh, what they preach on the pages of Scripture. Now, let's push the pause button there and let's reflect on how these truths should transform us. We've seen the Spirit's unity with Father and the Son. We've seen the Spirit guiding the disciples into the truth. This is why we have our New Testament. The Spirit glorifying Jesus through what He reveals about His person and work. And just now, how the Spirit also convicts the world by proving Jesus is glorious. So what? Okay. Well, first of all, it means that the church should be a word-based people. The church should be a word-based people. A biblical people. A scripture-saturated people. Our only access to the truth is through the Spirit-given words of the writers of Scripture. We've talked about today the Apostles. The Spirit reveals the truth about Jesus through the written words of the Apostles. The way the Spirit worked to reveal Jesus to them was unique and unrepeatable. The Apostles' witness to Jesus is our access to the truth about Jesus When we read what they wrote, we are encountering what the Spirit of God declares of Jesus. Now, that's not to exclude our Old Testaments. It's not to exclude the Old Testament's authority and the Old Testament's witness to Christ. It's just to say that we best read the Old Testament the way Jesus taught the apostles to understand the Old Testament in light of himself. The whole of Scripture, Jesus says, reveals Christ to us. And that's most pointedly demonstrated in how the Spirit showed the disciples what to understand and write down about Jesus in connection to what the prophets wrote down in anticipation of Jesus. So the whole of the Bible becomes one piece, one witness to Jesus. So that means we should be devouring the Word of God. How else does a bride get to know her husband? unless she sits with him and hears him speak over her. I'm talking to the bride of Christ. How else do we hear our husband and get to know him unless we sit with him and listen to him speak to us here? He has wonderful things to say to us. Church, we will know Jesus and grow deep in our relationship with Jesus insofar as both of our arms sit on either side of this book and we pour over what it says. Some of you are growing cold to Jesus and bitter of how far he seems to you. And that's because his word has been far from you for some time. The ruler of this world has you confused in a bunch of lies while the Spirit Himself is right now inviting you to come and drink from the truth He declares about Jesus on the pages of Scripture. So open up this book 
often and drink eternal life in Christ. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 31 of his own gospel, these things are written, are written, not written in the clouds, written here in a book. They're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, eternal life. Read these words, meditate on them, make them your life day in and day out. This is where you come into the picture, what I mentioned earlier. Right? You feel kind of disconnected. The Spirit came and gave that to the disciples. Where, what do I do with it? This is what you do with it. You read it. You enjoy it. And the Spirit comes and continues teaching you what it means. So you come into the picture here. Jesus even brings you into the picture in chapter 17, verse 20, in his own prayer. He says, I do not ask for these disciples only. And he's referring to the 11. I do not ask these things for these 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We are the people who believe in Jesus through the disciples' word. That's us. We are those who believe through their words. But we've got to be reading these words and hearing these words in order to believe them. We've got to be reading these words to discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error that is in the world. 1 John 4, 6 says this, Whoever knows God listens to us. This is John writing. Whoever, that's bold. Whoever knows God listens to me and the other apostles. Whoever knows God listens to us. And John means the authorized apostles of Jesus. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. So how are you going to know whether you're loving the true Jesus amidst all the phony Jesuses that this world is throwing at us day in and day out? Jesus is cool, very popular, It's just most of the time he's a false Jesus they're presenting. How are you going to deal with all these false Jesuses the world is giving us unless you're in the book that the Spirit wrote about Jesus? So get alone with your Bibles often and listen to the Spirit testify in these words. Don't listen for him to testify apart from these words, but in these words. I grew up in a denomination that eventually forsook this teaching. And I remember hearing the shift. Hearing the shift talked about showing up at a conference and watching it take place when a woman stood up at at the conference, opened her Bible, and said, listen for the Word of God instead of hear the Word of God. There's a difference. And it was intentional. I'm too sinful to listen for the word of God. I'll make up all kinds of stuff and it wouldn't lead me to the true Jesus. So give yourself to these inspired written words so that you don't miss Jesus's glory. Next, the church should also read the scriptures to see Jesus's glory. I'm talking from generations. That's not a book in your Bible. If it is, you need to scrap it. 
Genesis to Revelations. The church should should read Scripture to see Jesus' glory. We covered this a couple months back in September with Luke 24. But we're told here that the Spirit comes to glorify Jesus, to shine the spotlight on Jesus. And he does this through the apostles' testimony. So if this is the Spirit's goal in the words he's given to the apostles, that Jesus would be seen and treasured as beautiful, why do we so often come to the Bible with different goals, different purposes? These words aren't written first to fix your marriage. These words aren't written first to fix your finances. These words are not written first to make your business prosper. They're not written first to establish good moral principles in your household. They're not written first as a way to buttress your decision in the method that you choose to educate your children. They're not written first for you to win arguments in seminary. Those other things may come as a result of your encounter with the Bible, but these things are written by the Spirit first and foremost to enrapture you with the eternal glories of divine love revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why your Bibles exist. So that the Bible, so that the the, the Bible, the bride of Christ can come to the Bible and hear her husband speak wonderful things over her, glorious things over her. And when we're reading the Bible that way, then the church will also become a Christ-centered people, which is what the church should always be, a Christ-centered people. That's another implication this passage should have on our lives. A truly spiritual church is not measured by extraordinary experiences. A truly spiritual church is not measured by how much the music exhilarates you by how large the, the campus facilities are, by how high-tech the media is, by how rhetorically polished the preachers are, by how many comfortable services they provide, by how cent- central, you name it, whatever you want to fill in the blank. A, ch- a truly spiritual church, a church that is of the Spirit and filled with the Spirit is measured by how central Christ is in their hearts and worship and speech and counsel and doing and affections. Again, J.I. Packer says this about honoring the Holy Spirit. Believers honor the Holy Spirit when they give Him His way in their lives And when his ministry of exalting Christ and convincing of sin, sinking them ever lower, raising Christ ever higher in their estimate, goes on unhindered and unquenched. Think of the transformation God would bring in us when that is true of us. When that can be said of us. The ministry of the Spirit by his word sinking us sinking us ever lower, raising Christ ever higher in our estimate. Wherever a church is aroused or preoccupied with ministries devoid of Christ, all kinds of red flags should go up. 
Wherever the miraculous isn't calling attention to a crucified and risen Savior, we've got serious problems. Wherever we become more Christian-centered in our interaction with the world instead of Christ-centered, we need to repent. There's a big difference between those two. It's a serious flaw and dangerous to souls when we just want everybody to be like us apart from offering them the person of Jesus himself. Does that make sense? We're not just trying to win people to a philosophy of life, but to a person. Not just to another moral standpoint, but to a savior. Not just to a logic, but to a Lord. And that also means that we should offer the apostles Christ to the world. Or another way we might say it, we should give the world the biblical Christ and not a Christ of our own making. As I said before, the apostles' words in Scripture are the authoritative standard for all future preaching of the gospel. The Spirit convicts the world when the world hears His testimony. And our witness to the world will be effective insofar as it aligns with His testimony. If the Spirit glorifies Christ and convicts the world through the apostles' words that He inspired, through their preaching, what message do we think we should give the world? What message desperately needs to be translated for all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations to hear? What do you think we should trust to change people, to save people? Church, we must trust the same message the Spirit used to save us. The message of truth, the gospel of our salvation. The message that though we were but rotten sinners, the Father has loved us with a great love. He loved us by sending His Son to die for our sins, to stand under the fierce wrath of God in our place. All our treasonous acts were wiped clean from our account, and all of Jesus' righteousness was then given to us simply by faith. So that we could stand before God, not in our rags of rebellion, but in garments of glory on the last day that will fit us for His kingdom. In some form or fashion, we all heard that message. We, we heard Jesus saying, come, through that message. We heard the Spirit and the Bride say, come, receive His grace, it is free. And even still, the Spirit invites us to taste the glories that He knows so well this morning as we read his words. He knows, the Spirit knows, like no one else knows, the majesty of God's wrath and the depths of God's love that spares us from it. And he inspired a story to be written that we might learn it and turn to Christ by reading it giving our lives to Him forever. If you're here today and do not know this truth personally, then I would ask you to listen to the Spirit's Word in Scripture and act on it. Don't just take my word for it. Read the text yourself. These written words are not merely human words. They are God's words. And He says that whoever believes on Christ and submits to Him as Lord will be saved. If you do not know Jesus, do not leave today without talking to somebody about the Spirit, 
It's testimony in the scriptures. Some of the elders will be at the front afterwards if you need further counsel. But for now, why don't we join together in prayer?